names are important. In fact, it's what Ruth chapter 4 is all about. The Hebrew word for name occurs seven times, and there are 24 different names mentioned. Names are important. And they're important for us today on Remembrance Sunday, when millions of individual names are brought to mind. When millions of names on gravestones and memorial walls and memorial arches are commemorated. My own middle name was deliberately given me by my parents to remember an uncle I never knew. You see, my mum was from a family of five sisters and one brother. And because that brother was killed in active service in 1940, I was given the family name. It's my middle name to stop it dying out. And I thought that may make a good introduction for the message today. So I rang up my mum on Thursday to confirm details about that brother of hers, about my uncle Jimmy. Now, she told me his full name was James Charles Hanley Garnham, hence my middle name. I'm Andrew Garnham Patterson. And having his full name, I thought, let me just Google it, see what more details I can discover. And suddenly, information opened up that neither I nor my mum knew anything about. My uncle served with the fleet air arm as a rear gunner. He flew swordfish off the carrier HMS Illustrious. The swordfish was a biplane, one of the slowest planes in World War II. It carried a pilot and there was a gunner. That was the position my uncle occupied, who sat directly behind the pilot but facing to the back. And as I went through Wikipedia, I discovered that on the 26th of November 1940, 15 swordfish took off the illustrious from the illustrious and flew off to attack Italian positions on the Greek island of Leros. It reports that they all returned except one. That one carried my uncle. And on that Tuesday, a 20-year-old man lost his life. Names are important. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. And it's the writer's intention in putting together the history of Ruth, this book that we are looking at, that we should remember certain names. So let's start with Boaz. I've called him Boaz and said the Redeemer is active. Boaz, the Redeemer, is active. Do you remember how the previous chapter ended there in chapter 3 and verse 18? 
and probably you'll like to have that chapter open in front of you, chapter 4 in particular, and follow through with me. Verse 18 of chapter 3, the Naomi said, wait my daughter until you find out what happens. For the man, that is Boaz, will not rest until the matter is settled today. And sure enough, the following verse tells us this, chapter 4, verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Actually, the translators are being very kind here uh, by uh, describing what Boaz said as, come over here, my friend. Well, actually, no doubt, Boaz called this closer guardian redeemer by his name. But the narrator deliberately uses an expression in Hebrew that means nobody special. Literally, nobody special. Or you and I might say, so-and-so. It's there to highlight to us that nobody special, that so-and-so remains anonymous, that he has no name as Boaz orchestrates events. And gathering a quorum of the city council, Boaz begins his carefully calculated strategy. Have a look from verse 2. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring it to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so that I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, what would seem is happening here is that Boaz is invoking some existing Jewish laws. And this is where the whole guardian redeemer relationship comes into play. You see, in Leviticus 25, verse 25, the law book, it says this, if one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. Now, the, the intention of this law was really good. The intention was to keep land fairly and evenly distributed. So you see, its purchase is kept within the, the family or the clan or, or the tribe, you know, whoever is closest. And the expectation was that the family would therefore care for that destitute family member. And because land was such a vital and important commodity, it's no surprise that so-and-so jumps at the opportunity. I will redeem it, he said. And then we come into verse 5, which is pivotal to the story 
but actually is also one of the hardest verses to understand in this book. Now, every Hebrew commentator agrees that it's fraught with difficulties. And I need to humbly and carefully suggest that what many of us have understood in this verse is wrong. I have to confess, I think I've had it wrong all my life until I came to look at it more closely. Now, this is a serious claim. So I need to take a little time to explain what I mean. Hang on in there with me. Ruth, the book we're looking at, was written in Hebrew. Hebrew was originally a language without vowels. You know, we have vowels in our language, A-E-I-O-U. Hebrew didn't have vowels. So some ancient Jewish groups, in order to help the reading of Hebrew words to preserve the true meaning, added vowel marks. And another group added marginal notes. So in Hebrew scrolls, you have the main text, which is known as K. Well, actually, it's a longer word, but we'll just call it K for the time being. You have the main text known as K, which means what is written. And on the right-hand side of the scroll, you have the marginal notes, which are known as Q. It, again, has a longer Hebrew word, but we'll just call it Q for the time being, meaning what should be read. Or to put it another way, therefore, K is what one finds written in the Torah scrolls and is the main text in those ancient manuscripts, while Q is written in the margins of those ancient manuscripts, and it is the one that is read aloud in public Torah readings. Now, the differences between K and Q are very few, and most of the time, English translators will follow Q. They'll follow the marginal reading, and they'll be guided by the context when differences occur. Now, are you still with me? Sorry, you probably didn't come here or are listening for some lesson in, in Hebrew, but, but bear with me. Because in Ruth chapter 4, verse 5, there's a difference between Q, the marginal reading, and K, the main body of the text. Uh, let me point it out to you. That verse says, then, Moab, then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire, and it's that expression, you also acquire, that comes from Q, that they've taken from Q, the marginal reading. You also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow. Now, K has this reading. It says, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, I also acquire, not you acquire, I also acquire Ruth, the Moabite. And a number of Christian and Jewish scholars advocate that this is the better reading of the text in its context. And I must admit, I'm thoroughly persuaded. You see, as we saw last week, there's no Jewish law that suggests that anyone other than a brother of the deceased has a duty to marry the widow. So, so look at what Boaz is saying again. Let me paraphrase it like this. He says something like this. Look, so-and-so, when you buy this land from Naomi, I want you to know that I'm marrying Ruth, 
and I'm going to honor her family name and will seek to have children who will be able to take over their inheritance when they're old enough. And to paraphrase so-and-so's response, he came back and said, well, then there's no point in me buying this land and looking after the family because it will revert to any sons that you might have and my investment will be wasted. So go ahead, it's all yours. And here's the legal document. And he sort of took off his sandal as was the way that they did transactions in those days. Verse 9, chapter 4. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Marlon. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now, do you see, we're, we're back again to names. As anonymous so-and-so fades away, the names of the deceased family who were first mentioned with sadness in chapter 1, they are repeated with honor now towards the close of the account. So before we leave Boaz, let's notice again how he serves as a picture and points forward to the perfect Redeemer, Jesus Christ. For with Boaz, you see, here is a costly redemption. He's not only paying the price required, but he's facing the scandal of marrying the despised outsider, the Moabite widow. But he does it because of love. And what a far greater redemption price was to be paid by the Son of God to bring utterly undeserving rebels into his family. Rebels like us. What amazing condescension. What incredible love to take our debts, to pay our sin, and to take our rebellion upon himself. For we know that on that cross outside Jerusalem, Jesus took our death. He took our hell. He paid for our obedience. The great Redeemer. What love. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. You see, Boaz points forward to Jesus. We're able to look back and to the cross. But we need to round up this series by looking briefly at the other significant characters who are mentioned in this chapter. You see, we've looked just now at Boaz. The Redeemer is active. Secondly, I want us to look at Naomi. The distressed is comforted. Naomi, the distressed 
is comforted. Verse 14. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. You see, Naomi, who came to Bethlehem bitter and empty, now has the grandson she couldn't have dreamt of on that journey back from Moab. In fact, the expression used by the women about that child, where they say, he will renew your life, is the same expression that's used in Psalm 23, verse 3, that is so familiar to so many of us. He restores my soul. Or maybe you have the translation that reads, he refreshes my soul. That's what they were saying was happening to Naomi. And my friends, this is what Almighty God does for empty people who return to him. There is refreshing. There is a fullness for empty people that they could never have imagined. Paul writes this in Colossians 2 verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. That's the experience of folks like us, empty folks. We have fullness in Christ. And as he writes to the Ephesian church, Paul prays that like Naomi, believers might be able to comprehend such love. Ephesians 3, 17 to 19, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, empty people like us. And what do we receive through our Redeemer? Fullness. You see, ultimately, true soul refreshment doesn't come from having things, even children or grandchildren. It comes from knowing that you are surrounded by the infinite love and wisdom of God. That's refreshment of the deepest order for folk who feel distressed by the events of this world. That's a fullness which is more than sufficient for the empty, aching heart. You see, we notice with Naomi, the distressed is comforted. But thirdly, there's Ruth. There's Ruth, the outsider, is accepted. The outsider is accepted. Did you notice how the people of Bethlehem started talking about Ruth, the, the widow from Moab? Verse 11 again. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel, May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore 
to Judah. You see, no longer is Ruth referred to as the Moabites. She's now compared to the mothers of Israel, to Rachel and Leah. She's spoken of in the same breath as Tamar, who was an ancestor of her new husband. She's now described in that patriarchal society as being better to Naomi than seven sons. I tell you, praise doesn't get much higher than this. See, this outsider, Ruth, coming from an evil pagan nation, is now fully enrolled in the people of God. And what a beautiful illustration of what happens to folks like us when we come in faith to Jesus. We're adopted into the family. We're accepted. We have a new identity. We're given an honor and a standing we never deserved in ourselves. And it is all the work of Jesus. I wonder, do you feel as if you're looking in from the outside? Do you long to experience the acceptance of God as, as one who is guilt-free and confident? Do you ache for a new beginning? Do you ache for a new identity, for a new community? Then come in faith to Jesus and receive freely from him his welcoming, his lavish grace. So Ruth, the outsider, is accepted. Fourthly, David. David, the king, is coming. For here's the kicker, you see. Here's the punchline. Here's the reveal in this story. The child born to Ruth and Boaz was to be grandfather to great King David. You can imagine Jewish children hearing the story for the first time and, and turning to their parents in amazement. What? I wasn't expecting that. Great King David was, was born into this family line. Great King David was related to Ruth. Great King David was the product of this amazing string of events. Now, you, you may remember, back when we were looking at chapter 1, we observed that this book was deliberately symmetrical in the way that it was put together. And you may remember that we started with the gloom and doom of the opening verses. 1 verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. See, those were the bad days, days of terror, days of oppression and confusion. But the book finishes with a plentiful grain harvest and the promise of Israel's greatest king. Days of security and prestige and influence. And in a small way, this book of Ruth mirrors the whole of Scripture. Where we start, you see, really with the, the fall of man and the entry of sin and death. But we end with the coming of the King of Kings and his eternal rule. In the last chapter of the Bible, we read this, Revelation 22, verses 3 to 5. No longer will there be any curse. 
the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name, his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. You see, that's the hope we have. That's our confidence. That's our expectation. King David's greater son is coming. The famine will be over. Everything our heart has longed for will be realized in him. The faint echoes of eternity that we hear in our hearts will become a never-ending symphony in his kingdom. But there's one more name in this book that we need to consider. For this one has been hiding in plain sight. It's Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord is ruling. His fingerprints have been everywhere, including this final chapter. By the way, did you notice at the beginning of the, the, this chapter 4 how Boaz sits down at the town gate just as the uh, Redeemer guardian comes along? Go back to that verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Wow, you say. What a coincidence. Yeah. As we saw in chapter 2, God's fingerprints are all over these events. There are no coincidences. God is in control. And after the marriage has taken place, we read this in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. See, because there was an unanswered question. You've probably thought of it. Why didn't, have, why didn't Ruth have children with Marlon, her first husband? We see the implication here is that she was unable to conceive. But once again, the Lord is at work for his greater purposes. And, of course, that's the reason for all the references to the family tree in chapter 4. It shows that God was working through, for example, the strange birth of Perez to Judah and Tamar. He was working through Ruth and Boaz to bring about the birth of great King David. But the family tree actually isn't just in this book. In his gospel, Matthew gives us more detail. There in Matthew chapter 1 verses 5 to 6 we read this, Salmon the father of Boaz whose mother was Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse and Jesse the father of King David. Now did you see that? Did you notice a name there that may have been familiar to you? Boaz's mother is named as Rahab. And tradition has it, and most agree, that this Rahab was none other than Rahab the prostitute from Jericho. And the family tree continues in Matthew, and it ends in this way. Matthew 1.16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. 
from prostitutes and pagans, God is working to bring about the birth of his incarnate son, the promised Messiah. His fingerprints are everywhere. So let me close by applying this to you right now. You see, you may be a follower of Jesus Christ. You may be someone who's placed their trust in his finished work. But for you, situations have arisen which are both perplexing and hurtful. Maybe COVID has hit you or your loved ones. Maybe as a result, your job is under threat. Maybe there are money worries, or or maybe you're just feeling so crushed and isolated by everything you see going on around you. Well, look, can I gently and lovingly remind you that God is in control? And can I urge you to keep looking out for his fingerprints in all the circumstances of life? He hasn't given up on you. His power isn't limited. His knowledge of you isn't incomplete. His love for you hasn't disappeared. See, Naomi had felt lonely and bitter and empty. Disaster had come on her and she was overtaken by shame. And yet God keeps working and she's renewed she's refreshed she's sustained well as you walk your path remember that the lord loves you as much as naomi wait on him look to him But what about others listening in? You actually identify more with Ruth the Moabitess. You're an outsider. You're not a follower of Jesus. And and yet, like Ruth, you've seen the beauty of a Christ-centered life. It contrasts so much with where you're at. You're realizing that this world is not the product of blind chance, but is in the hands of a sovereign God who graciously calls you to himself. You know that a redeemer came to buy back sinners to himself. You know the price was nothing less than him giving his own life in the place of sinners. And maybe you're a bit like so-and-so. You've heard the offer. It's been presented to you. So what will you do? Will you count the cost as being too high and turn away? Or will you humbly and thankfully give your life to the greatest lover and most faithful friend you could ever imagine? Will you remain just a so-and-so? 
Or today, will you become one of God's people? Someone known and loved and rescued by the great Redeemer with such amazing grace. Let's pray. Sovereign God, Sovereign Father, we thank you for books like Ruth that point us ultimately to Jesus. Thank you for these real events we've been looking at. Thank you that Boaz is this wonderful picture, this illustration, this, this pointer to the work that Jesus was to do. We thank you that in Jesus there is a Redeemer. We thank you for the amazing grace that is lavished upon folks like us, undeserving folks. Father, we don't want to be like nameless so-and-so. Foolish, self-centered so-and-so. But Father, we want to be those who gratefully, joyfully receive the lavish, amazing, overflowing gift that you have given to us, offered us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that there on Calvary's cross, you had taken the initiative that Jesus came to die in the place of sinners like us. And thank you that through faith in him, we can be born again. We can have a new identity. We can be adopted into your family. Lord, thank you that as we come before you, we come empty. It's not as if we can pay you anything. All we have is our sin. But we thank you that it is your grace that freely invites us. And you invite us to know fullness and refreshing. Receive our praise and thanks in 